very first time. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam, and this is a Stick to Wrestling podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. And with that said, uh, let's get to the social media part of the show. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it is John McAdam. Just do the search. Guys are fighting with chairs. You can get my Twitter insights on wrestling and other stuff. And with that, I want to bring on our convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. And if you have not joined the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page yet, these are the burning questions from last week that were discussed in Classic Wrestling's McLaughlin Group, known as our uh, Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. How is Ezra Charles wrestling training going? Will Dr. X unmask? Is that Andy Warhol at ringside taking pictures? I got to ask you about that, John. Uh, does Mean Gene's head fit under Piper's kilt? Hint, it does. And did Bob Backlund keep the belt 40 years ago today? Clips, videos, pictures, and people who don't argue. What more could you ask for? You know, after we added the group watch to the group, since a lot of us are stuck home, a lot of you said, well, this group can't possibly get any better, right? But it has because I have added a fantasy 1976 Crockett Cup tournament to the group. So that's certainly something you don't want to miss out on. With this being the last day of WrestleMania season, we are going to talk about WrestleMania 6, 7, and 8 today. I also want to talk about the upcoming WrestleMania. But before we go to that, I would like to bring on our popular guest, Thomas Bain. Thomas, thank you for taking the time. Gentlemen, it's my pleasure. I, I will say that if I lose uh, what you're able to say, it's because my hair has kind of grown out like sweet hands in the last couple of weeks with this lockdown right now. So. You may have to repeat a few things for me, but thanks for having me again. Oh, no. He's got the late 70s Pete Rose look going on. So, Thomas, let me ask you this. I want to ask you both you and Sean this. Um, I know, Thomas, you keep up with the current product. Sean, you really don't. Uh, but what do you guys think of WrestleMania? Like, what it's going to look like taking place in front of no live audience? The the first thing I can think of is popcorn fart. Because um, <laughs> it really seems anticlimactic to give the undertaker a grand entrance when there's nobody there. Yeah. It really takes away the panache when you hear the, you know, you know, John Cena's theme or the rocks theme or Roman Reigns theme. And there's no one to give a, a, a cheer or a boo to having said that. I think that unless the governor of Florida or the, you know, the mayor of Tampa would have intervened, Vince McMahon would have held that at Raymond James stadium for 40 people. If he could have, this is the same, this is the same guy who's calling card for the last, you know, almost 20 years has been, we were the first group to congregate after nine 11. That's been his driving home point. So, you know, damn well, he would have, you would have done, you know, moved hell and heaven and earth to have WrestleMania there. That being said, I just don't know why they didn't scrap SummerSlam and put WrestleMania in August and give it a little bit of a push to it. But that's, I'm not Vince McMahon. No, and I, under, I I like your idea, like, you know, just have it when we're ready to have it. Let it be WrestleMania. I want to like it. It's it's this coming uh, Saturday and Sunday, and I want to like it. I just have the feeling that I'm not going to. I mean, I, I feel like you need an audience, and I've, I've watched some of the, the Raw and the SmackDown, etc., and it, it feels like a high school play. It really does. John, you don't want to like it. You know why you don't want to like it? Well, uh, no, because if this, because if this works, you're going to get more of it. 
Oh, no. That definitely uh-huh. not. Uh-huh. In some circumstances, they will do this because the overhead is so low. If they're able to pull this off and make it entertaining, they will try it again. I seriously doubt it. I mean, and plus they make money at the not, live Not event. in the pay-per-view. Uh, not for a pay-per-view, but for some TV stuff, I think they would. It's going to make it look like performance art, which is what it is anyway at this point. They make money on the Raws and the Smackdowns, like at the live gate and merchandise, especially merchandise. I'm certainly there's going to be a spot. As, this is like, as we're talking about it, this is something in wrestling that you never did. And now you're getting a free ticket to try it. I mean, maybe, but I, I can't imagine Vince preferring I can't either, Vince. but I mean, it's, I mean, it could, there could be some reason. I just, it's just something I want it to fail just so no one thinks of it working. But I, but I think you're right though about one thing, Sean, if what say, let's say, you know, June 10th, we get the all clear to resume our daily lives. Are you going to want to sit, you know, packed like a sardine in an arena for Monday night raw? Of I course not. You're going to, you're going to want to wait this out for a little while and let the weaning, you know, go on. And then maybe by late summer, fall, then when football season starts, I'll stick to wrestling and I'll get into that part of it. But I don't think that people are going to want to come out there and it's probably better to have, raw at the performance center in front of me and and at least then you could have the performance folks but no one knows who they are who are training they could be the quasi audience then as opposed to going to a you know large arena that's 12,000 people and having you know 2,000 show up to me that is not Vince McMahon's mindset as soon as he is able to have a live raw in front of a big audience he's going to do it and I also think you know maybe you and I might not go out for something like that, but there will be people who will do it. Oh, I agree with you. I'm just saying that if this works, then it's going to be another tool in the, I don't want this to work because this is an avenue. I don't want to see, I don't want them to be able to say we did wrestling without a crowd there and it worked because then at some other point, I don't know why this would come up, but I, I don't want it to work for that reason. I don't want to have anyone to have a reason to think this is going to work. Just like the Funk and Lala thing didn't work. It'll be interesting because I, I think without a shadow of a doubt, this is the end of the movie theater business with, with this. Now, mm-hmm. does that transcend to sporting events, concerts, things like that? To a degree, maybe, but I don't think it'll get to the point where we're sitting here five years from now and we're talking about Monday Night Raw being taped you know, in an empty arena. I don't even know about movie theaters. It just seems like as soon as the green light hits whenever that will be and we have no idea when it's going to be i think people are going to kind of rush out for a return to normalcy and i think i think a movie theater going to a movie theater is like exactly what people are going to want to do even though i do think long term the movie theater business is in trouble because we either way this is an avenue i don't want them going down (laughs) they're not john they're not why would they not have a live event where they make a lot of money where they can record raw or smackdown i don't want this to work that's, I mean, that's, I, I can't think of a reason why, but all I know if it, as long as it doesn't work, then it's like, okay, obviously we need fans. All right. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's never been, it's been done to the point where like I've seen independent doing TV in the nineties in front of practically an empty arena. I mean, never uh, worked. Bedlam from Boston had like one row of, of people in the crowd and that was yep. it. So you had 10 people and then, no, no, it didn't work, but for different reasons. Anyway. End of WrestleMania season. This is going to be our last WrestleMania show, prob- possibly ever, or at least until next year. 
We have all kinds of talking points and questions. WrestleMania 6. Sean, let me ask you, what did you think of WrestleMania 6? I thought of WrestleMania 6, what I thought of 7 and 8. They sucked. All of them. The booking was bad. The crowd was bad. You had one really good match per card. Most of the guys were half-assing it. I mean, it, it just was bad. The whole thing was bad. Thomas, share your thoughts. Like Sean said, it's a one-match card. Factor in, you know, it's the farewell, so to speak, for Under the Giants. Everything else is very forgettable. The third biggest match, arguably, was the mixed tag with Dusty and Sapphire and, and Macho and Sherry. And that was just terrible. And then you have Brutus Beefcake being the one who, not officially, because the house shows, you know, obviously Hogan did it, but Brutus Beefcake being the one to end Kurt Henning's, you know, perfect streak. It, it's, it's very unforgivable. And the fact that Hogan and Warrior, they didn't tear the house down by any WrestleMania standards, but Warrior, yeah, he put forth the effort. I'll, I'll give him the old uh, participation medal for this. Yeah. The Warrior Hogan match was very much like the old uh, line about the dog walking on its hind legs. It's just a miracle to see it anyway. Probably not being done well, <laughs> but you're just, you know, you're still stunned. Yeah. All of these were, you, you had opportunities here too for some really good stuff. And you know what else I think, the, I just thought of this right now, and it's kind of a, a parallel with the 2007 Patriots for me. They were breaking down. All my heroes growing up were all breaking down. They were all getting old at the same time. Same thing happened with that Pats team. That's why I hate that Pats team. But that was happening here. You had Hogan. You had all the guys we all grew up on, and they were all getting old. They were getting old and stale. I agree with you. And the WWF, here's, all right, this isn't WrestleMania, but I think one thing that brought the WWF down was that they had already taken all the, the territories were all gone except for WCW and some minor league circuits like Memphis and Portland. And they had already taken everyone from WCW who was worth taking. Now that feeder system was gone. Now they had to try to create their own stars. And guess what? Sometimes they weren't good at it. They caught the rabbit. Yeah, exactly. Good what do you do then? <laughs> I mean, what do you do then? They, they, there were no more mountains and you still have to find a way to keep driving yourself. And at that point, because what happens is once you hit that mountain, it's like everyone's like, okay, now it's my turn. And all those guys get it paid. This was the, the fact 1990 WWF is a fact of, you know, reaping what you sow. When they were bringing in every person with a pulse in yep. 84, 85, 86, and then there was nothing for them to do, so they would just bury them. Then they were of no use to anyone else after the WWF, so they faded away. So 1990 comes around. These same guys are essentially worthless to them because they've already, you know, destroyed them on TV. They've been out of the public eye for, you know, two, three, four years. So they had to keep, you know, bringing in retreads. Now, obviously, Dusty Rhodes isn't a retread. But when, when you get to the fact that you're running out on a WrestleMania match, the Bolsheviks, for example, basically you're squashing Jimmy Snuka for no reason. I mean, they're really just kind of just crossing their fingers and hoping that we don't smell what they're, what they're doing. The Sheik. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, oh, my God, this whole I mean, it was I mean, it was so and they had the match of the decade in their hands during this stretch and they messed that up, too. Well, they I thought they did a really good job with the match. I thought they did a really good job building it up. I thought they did the right finish. We'll get more into that later. But other than that, you know, this WrestleMania, I mean, it looks like kind of a. a 
this is the time where the WWF really started feeling stale right around right around now, to be honest with you, April 1990. And this is the best of the three. I think okay. it was the best of the three. Okay, so the drawing card here, and it's pretty much our first question. Uh, unless uh, John, is there any other before we get to the questions that you want to bring up on this card? No, I'm 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 looking forward to tackling the okay. questions. Okay, and I'm, I'm assuming we all know the card. No one wants to hear me read it. So, uh, first question is Lawrence Miles. Any thought about not giving Warrior the main title, or was everything already set, Thomas? I don't think. They had any, and obviously I can't you know, speak from you know, exact knowledge, but I can't see them not giving the Warrior the belt in this position because you're putting your number two babyface out there to not fail. And, and by that, I mean Hogan and Hogan and Vince both have to have the realization that you know, he wants to go to Hollywood. He wants to kind of you know, walk back from the wrestling scene. It makes no sense for Hogan to retain here, and then you destroy the Warrior. Unless you're turning Warrior heel. And then the problem there is you have no one in the same galaxy as a number two babyface in that company. It just comes Hogan beats everybody. We'll give Hogan a token friend. Basically, you're hitting rewind from 1986 again at that point in time. And now, you know, the first couple times you do it, yeah, with, with Orndorff, with Savage, whatever, it, it's fine. But, you know, wrestling fans catch wise pretty quick. And if they did it again and turned Warrior heel, which is the only way I can see Hogan retaining here, you, you, you may as well just, you know, just keep running, you know, playing, you know, oldie hits from the wrestling, you know, showing 1985 Saturday Night's Made here on it. Yeah, I don't think there was ever any consideration given towards turning Warrior heel during the match. Um, that would have been a huge mistake, in my opinion. People forget that coming into this match, Warrior was really hot. And it felt like he had gained so much momentum that he could win the title. I did not know for a fact that Warrior was winning the title coming into this match. But they gave us a major hint. And they, they kept saying it was title for title. Now, I never really took that at the time as, okay, if Hogan wins, he's also the Intercontinental Champion. But I see the advertising for it. And it says title for title. And there's no way they can have Hogan win and put the Intercontinental title on him. They just can't do it. The one thing about now, that may have been a normal thing for WrestleMania, but if you're like me and you, John, who go to the Boston Garden, a Intercontinental champion against the world champion was reasonably, that was not unusual. It happened, you know, once or twice a year. I you know, saw Savage and Hogan, and they would always say the title for title thing, but that was one of those booking things that when you saw two titles, there was never a conclusive finish. Always. Only happened one time that I ever remember. It ends with Backland with the tag team titles in Chase Stadium. So that was the one thing that was stuck with me. Because you would always, when the guy was about to get the belt, he would drop it like a couple months early to some, you know, whatever. And that would be like the setup. And you do have the last push. And that didn't really happen here. That was the one holdback. But you're right. He was so hot. You're like, they have to try it. Yeah, I don't think when they had matches in Boston... Or local matches, I don't think they were advertised as title for title. I, rem I actually remember specifically when Morocco was Intercontinental type champion, both in 81 and 83, they made it clear that, you know, this this match is for Bob Backlund's title. Oh, and they did on Nesson. When they, they did, did the Nesson shows. Yep. Oh, yeah. I remember that. But then at the end of the day, when Backlund pins Morocco, he was an Intercontinental t champion. But I remember right, they, but that they, was the other thing was that they always advertised that only the world – you know, sometimes they would say both, but I mean – 
that, but there was never a clear finish, so it didn't matter how they advertised it. That, the tip-off was the fact that both belts were there. Whenever you had both belts there against each other, you never had a clear decision, ever. That's not true. Backlund, at the end of the day, pinned Morocco both times. I mean, after Backlund with Hogan. Whenever I saw Hogan and Savage and Hogan, you know, whoever was the uh, IC champion at this point, you always had a count out or something goofy, so you didn't end up hurting the IC champion. That was just one of the things that I got used to. That I was, that was like saying, well, why wouldn't you get the IC belt off of him if you're going to have him be the world champion here? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. Savage, I think, was the only wrestler who was the Intercontinental Champion until the Warrior match that went up against Hogan. I'm not sure. I don't remember if they had pinfalls or not. I know Honky Tonk Man, as far as I know, did not get any title matches against Hogan. They weren't well, put up against each other until after Honky Tonk lost the Intercontinental title. Was there any argument or discussion about the ending? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think really? Hogan knew that Warrior, you know, he, like like Thomas said, he was kind of trying, maybe looking to get out of wrestling, and he knew he had to get Warrior over clean. It was a protected finish, though. He didn't kick out of the leg drop. He missed the leg drop, and then it was the splash. So it, re- it really still protected Hogan, though, you know, in a way. Yeah, it did. It did. And I, th- I thought it was a really good match watching. I mean, I saw it live as it was happening. I really enjoyed the match. It felt like it felt like a real sport in a weird way because both like both wrestlers, just like, you know, if wrestling was real, had their own fans. And, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen next. It was exciting, wondering and caring that much if the WWF world title was going to change hands. And then, yeah, you finally see it change hands. It was St. Louis booking. It was Sam Mustard booking. That must have been in heaven because he was the old school, you know, actually treating the title as an athletic contest. Who's the best guy? Let's find out. UFC kind of, you know, yeah. it was old school St. Louis booking. So, I mean, I, I think that was maybe part of the appeal. Yeah, I agree. And now it's, it's unique. So it's even more appealing. Exactly. But to answer the questions, I agree with you guys. It was this seemed like much like Andre. This was kind of set up for a while. And this, they kind of were focused on this. My only thing was the ending. I wasn't sure if that was decided, but I guess it was. Chris Coyne, just as fans at the time, what was the finish you expected going into the match? Did you expect Hogan to go over going into the match, Thomas? Yeah, I expected Warrior to go over uh, for the reasons I, I explained a little bit earlier. But other than that, like, like I said, I knew Hogan had no holds barred coming out. I knew they were really strapping the rocket to Warrior. The Hogan thing, I, I could not see Hogan going over Warrior without there being some kind of heel turn. I didn't see a heel turn happening, but, you know, with Warrior you know, selling that much merchandise being so popular. Yeah, I, I would say that I think that I had Warrior the entire way winning this match. I remember the way I looked at it. Either Warrior goes over, or it's a time limit draw, which you're going to have a hard time taking Warrior to a time limit draw. I am sorry. Or, like, do a mass heel run-in, but the fans, I think, would not have been happy with that. So, I, I, I mean, I remember at the time not being 100% sure, but thinking, yeah, Warrior's going to win the title. The one thing with WWF, though, and, and that, the reason why I thought Warrior's going to go over was, compared to, to Crockett, when the WWF would do a pay-per-view, you would get a finish. It may not yes. be a clean finish, but you would, you would get a 1-2-3 in the middle of the ring on a main event. They wouldn't give you the, the dusty finish. They wouldn't give you the schmoz. Someone would, you know, Hogan must pose, Warrior must pose, whoever, you know, you're going to go home happy in some way, shape, or form. So that's probably the main reason why. 
Yeah, I agree. This is WrestleMania six, and every WrestleMania main event before that, all five of them had clean finishes. And the one in retrospect, it's ridiculous. It looks, it was obvious that the you know, Warrior was going over. He had to because of what Thomas said about the movie. And he, he was stale. Hogan was stale. Now, but I did not think that at all. I thought Hogan was going to win. I think that has more to do with the fact that good education on their part. I couldn't imagine Hogan losing. It's been so long at this point since it was like a real legit in the middle. You know, I'm just not used to it. was like when Backlund actually finally lost the belt. You know, I, we're talking about the ending of uh, when Kerry won the title in Texas and uh, Rick walked over and made a point of not congratulating, but saying you won. And the reason why I think they did that was because they screwed the Texas guys and Mon Eric so often that you had to show the fans like this is, you know, I just couldn't believe that Hogan was going to lose. In retrospect, it's silly, but I don't know. Bravo to them. All right, next question. Would you have done the hearts over the colossal connection for the belts, or was Andre only going to put Billy Eadie over? Thomas. I don't think Andre was going to only put over Billy Eadie, because from what I've heard, Andre and Brett got along fine. I just think, to me, and I I may not know, I don't have the answer to this, obviously, but I think Andre Haku tag team title run was almost like a last minute audible to give Andre that farewell run. It was. And they wanted Demolition to have the belts long term, but this was a way to, you know, get Andre the victory lap, so to speak, and have him go over. I don't think that Andre would have had a problem, you know, letting the Hart Foundation go over that tag team. Frankly, Andre didn't really job Haku was the one that got pinned. So really, I don't know what his break would be either way. Would he have put the Hearts over? Yeah. Would he have only put Billy D over? No. That's my opinion. Yeah, I I don't have a definitive answer for this. Um, I do know that they were interested in pushing Bret Hart harder as a single babyface. So that might have had something to do with it. But I mean, Andre could be fussy about certain things. From what I understand, he could be difficult to deal with at times. But I have no reason to think he would say, you know, no, I will only put over Demolition. Plus the WWF, I mean, Demolition was over. They They were still pushing them in 1990 after they won the titles. I don't think it was personal, and he probably did balk at it if it was brought up because it doesn't make any sense. Where is the most value in Andre losing here? I mean, it wasn't Andre, but I mean, him taking this loss, who is the more value? It's not going to look realistic for Bray to do a pinfall on Andre because the size difference is so great. I mean, Neidhart, I guess, but as you said, they weren't going to push him. They were pushing Brett. The value here is giving it to Edie, I guess, out of, you know, out of any of them. But I mean, Brett doesn't make any sense. I don't think it's anything personal. It just doesn't make sense. No, I mean, I, like I said, I don't think Andre would have cared either way. Um, but I want to talk about something Thomas brought up. Yeah, the, the run with the tag team titles was basically a going away present for Andre, as was the baby face turn and him smacking Bobby Heenan around. It was kind of, you know, it was signaling the end of the Andre era. And by the way, um, you know, we're going to talk about two different WrestleManias. I mean, this obviously was kind of the end of the initial Hulk Hogan era because for the first time, like there's when this show came and went, there was no real plan to put the title back on Hogan. I mean, every time when Savage won the title in 88, the plan was eventually Hogan was getting that title back. This time, yeah, he did get it back, but there was no plan for him to get it back at this point. At that point in time, I believe Hulk Hogan was doing Suburban Commando, I think is what he left to yeah. whenever Earthquake jumped him. I think Hulk wanted to keep that plan wide open because if I think 
if that movie becomes a hit, he's out the door. And I think at that point in time, the, the miles had gotten to him, the travel had gotten to him, the schedule had gotten to him. If he could make a clean break from wrestling, I think he would have done it in a heartbeat. You're probably right. Everyone in the business wants to do that. Or at the time, everyone wanted to do that. Hulk's too smart of a businessman not to leave the door open. But I think Hulk went into his movie career thinking The Rock. Think the uh, exact oh, trajectory sure. is The Rock and he was going to be that. I'm not saying that's realistic. I'm saying that's what he was thinking. No, he thought he was going to be the next Schwarzenegger. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I mean the Rock. The I mean the next big, huge action star. Yeah, yeah, he thought he was. Right, that's what I'm saying. So as far as this being the last match, I mean, yeah, I, in his mind, probably yeah. But you know, why burn the bridge if you don't have to? From Brian Colley, uh, would you have gone a different direction knowing that Warrior bombed as champ? Would they have benefited from uh, someone turning heel, Thomas? Someone turning heel, uh, as, as we said, I mean, at this point in time, your, your babyface roster that's viable is Ultimate Warrior, Jake the Snake Roberts, Dusty Rhodes, and really that's it because if that boss man had just turned babyface, you can't turn him back heel again. If you know you're not going to give the belt to Warrior, maybe you have a match with Hogan and, and Kurt Henning. Hogan DB Aussie had run its course already. You can't go around the horn again with Hogan Savage at this point in time, I think. No. Hogan and Dusty is just a, a horrible mishmash. I think it's either Hogan Warrior or Hogan Perfect. You know what? And he was a really good wrestler, and we, we think of him fondly, but Kurt Henning as Mr. Perfect was kind of a bomb. I mean, when Hogan went around the horn with Henning, yeah, it might have been the business itself, but the attendance was down. Those ma- a lot of those matches did not sell out. It just kind of didn't get over really at first. So I think they made the right call doing Hogan and Warrior. I mean, the fans, the Sky Dome sold out. The anticipation for it was insane. Each guy had his fans, like I said earlier. I, I think it was the right call to do what they did. It was the obvious call to do what they did. I mean, in retrospect, this is like the Tommy Rich thing when he was the NWA champion. If you look back in, from 1986 at, back at that, it looks foolish. But if you're sitting there in 1980 and 81, it doesn't look foolish at all because Tommy Rich was a really big star and he was completely over. Same thing with the Warrior. If you're back there at that time, he's the obvious guy. And Vince has been looking for Hogan's replacement since Hogan showed up. So, I mean, at that point, it would have been odd to do something else. Uh, You know what? I mean, we're, we're getting a little off track, but I thought it was a huge mistake putting the title on Tommy Rich for five days. I mean, and maybe... That's the wrong mindset. The fellow, this guy held the NWA title for five days. Ha ha. You know, people make jokes about the Buffalo Bills losing four Super Bowls. Well, they won four AFC championships, but that's not what gets remembered. And I think that whole thing hurt Tommy Rich in the long run. I would agree about the length of the reign. I was just talking about the guy himself. Okay. No, no, I I know what you're saying. And yeah, Warrior, you know, I don't think anyone is saying, oh, wow, what a big mistake they made putting the title on this guy who wasn't a big star. He was a big star. He looked like maybe he was the guy who was going to step up and be the the WWF's new number one. All right. Chris asked another question about the, we talked about this, about taking some of the steam out of the Warriors pin. Thomas, uh, do you have anything else about this show you want to bring up before we move on to the, the next one? I know some of these matches were built up, but take away Hogan and Warrior. It looks like your standard show at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Yep. It really does. There's nothing that jumps out at you. Like, these matches are all kind of like, meh. Even like, you know, Jake D.B. Austin, which I think was white hot at the time. They put it on so early. 
DiBiase didn't eat the DDT in it and get the pin on him. Virgil came in and bailed him out, which I don't know why in 1990 they were protecting Ted DiBiase so much, but that's neither here nor there. It really was a very meh card, I think. Very Philly Spectrum-esque, I would call it. Was it a bad example that this card drew 67,000 people? <laughs> I, that card, 67,000 people were there for Hogan Warrior. Yep. That's all it is. That's all it was. You know, one thing I want to say about this show, or at least the aftermath of the show, I will go down saying that, yeah, Warrior bombed as WWF champion, but they did not give him the right push. They needed, as soon as the TV started after this, I couldn't believe how much hype they continued to give Hulk Hogan. Like, oh yeah, Warrior's the champion, but now Hulk Hogan is the immortal Hulk Hogan. And you look back and when the WWF title changed hands, when Backlund won the title, Bruno took a lot of time off. Bruno disappeared. The focus was on Backlund. Then when Hogan won the title, I mean, they got rid of Backlund in a hurry. I mean, he was there for about another six months, but there was no emphasis put on Bob Backlund. And I think they needed more, not, not to throw Hogan away the way they threw Backlund away, because Hogan was still immensely popular, but you needed to focus more on Warrior and less on Hogan. And they just put way too much focus on Hogan. And that's a big reason he didn't get over. I think with that, though, I think Vince may have known that Hogan's movie career was not going to go the way Hulk Hogan expected. And now you have on the A shows or even on the B shows, your world heavyweight champion, the ultimate warrior. And on the other show, which which would be normally a, you know, National Guard armory, you can book arenas as B shows with the immortal Hulk Hogan. Which is the plan. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but when Backlund won the belt, that's when Bruno came back and got the moniker Wrestling's Living Legend, though, correct? Uh, no, he was the living legend before that. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you weren't around back then, so I totally get that. But, you know, like I said, they, they had to do more for the Warrior. And that, that's to this day, I think he could have gotten over as, you know, not maybe not as much as Hulk Hogan, but he could have gotten over big and carry the WWF title, but it seemed like they wanted you to know, hey, hey, Hulk Hogan's still number one and Warrior is one B at best, but probably probably number two. <sighs> okay, I guess we have to do this. And we go to Los Angeles with a main event so hot that they had to move arenas for the safety of the professional wrestlers themselves. Yeah. As Vince McMahon told me. <laughs> The fact that it went from an arena of 100,000 to an arena of 20 has absolutely nothing to do with it. Okay, I guess we'll go to the questions. I just, I, I hate this. Man. I, this it gets, it gets worse. Well, let me, let me um, before we go to the questions, for those of you who don't know, we are a generation that, my generation, probably Sean's too, that we'd never experienced a country being at war before, or our country being at war before. Vietnam was before our time, and uh, no war. And now all of a sudden we've got this new thing going on in our lives that, yeah, we're at war with another country, Iraq, and people who we know are being sent off to this war. So this is the feeling that's going on in this country. And what do you know? Vince McMahon builds his WrestleMania around it. And there was a lot of controversy over that. Patriotism equals money. Yeah. So you had the uh, Sergeant Slaughter turn. Uh, you have the chic, uh, this is pretty much like the old timers game over at Yankee stadium with Luke Appling and, uh, you know, Yogi bear out there at catcher. Did they honestly think they were going to draw anything on this card? 
They did. Oh. They really did. Vince was in love with that angle where, I mean, he brought Slaughter back before the Iraq tensions happened, before they attacked Kuwait. That was a huge surprise. And when I first heard they were bringing back Slaughter, I was kind of like, eh, okay, well, they brought back Snooker. They'll probably do with Slaughter what they've done with Snooker. And no, from day one, Sergeant Slaughter, who had left the WWF on you know unhappy terms six years ago, was back. And he was considered so washed up at that point. But he was back and he was getting a mega push. And it was a stunner. No one was expecting that. Thomas, how shocked were you when you heard about the arena move? Well, at the time, I really didn't put two and two together. I, and I didn't even think about the terrorism aspect or the lack of ticket aspect. But to me, I don't know if Vince thought that Sergeant Slaughter equals money as an Iraqi sympathizer. I think if he just put WrestleMania out in the middle of a cornfield, he'd get 100,000 people to show up. I think that, that was the Vince's mentality was at that time. And this is what you know first humbled him leading up to you know the doldrums of the mid-90s. This, is, this was Vince's first humbling, I think. This and, is exactly what I was asking about when I asked you, Thomas, about the, was the 67,000 on the last card a good thing or a bad thing? Right. And, and that's exactly why. I think, I, and, you know, there, there's been speculation, according to Bruce Pritchard, which, which I really say tongue-in-cheek right now, the original plan for WrestleMania Seven was for Tugboat to turn heel and go against Hulk Hogan. Now, Okay, devil's advocate, Iraq, USA, slaughter, turncoat Hogan, in a vacuum, and you get the right booking, the right this, the right that. Could you sell out the L.A. Coliseum? Maybe not, but you're going to put butts in the seats. I do not see a way, unless they're going to give you double the face value of your ticket from the usher in the stands, how you'll get 90,000 people in there for Hulk Hogan and Fred Ott. But I digress. John, did the actual fan? I, I understand Vince, in his delusional sense, thought this was going to be a match. I mean, did the actual fans think they were going to fill the Coliseum? Uh, he did. He really did think he was going to fill the Coliseum. There's no question in my mind. No, he, I mean, did the fans it. think that? Um, I don't know. I know I didn't think it. I know yeah. most of the, the crowd I ran around with thought it. But then again, when I first started going to wrestling shows, I mean, they were always full. So I figured, okay. They're always full, no matter what. And then I started going to shows where they weren't full. But, I mean, that's what I thought at first. That, yeah, it's wrestling. All, all the seats are always taken. All right, let's get to the questions. Uh, Dan Potts, who else would you have had The Undertaker face, Thomas? See, it depends on how you're going to book the match. If you're going to book the match as The Undertaker just totally destroying somebody, I think Jimmy Snuka was perfect. The only other two options you would have really had there were Tito Santana, which you know, Undertaker destroying Tito isn't going to really do a whole lot. And then you have Kerry Von Erich. And at that time, they were still trying to do something good with Kerry, you know, trying to push him a little bit more, you know, not totally bury him. So for Undertaker to squash Kerry would have just basically written him off and just sent him back to Texas. So unless you're willing to do that, I think Snook is the right booking. I think Snooker was the right guy as well. Uh, Undertaker was still pretty new to the WWF. He just got there about six months ago. They were still building him up. I think they they had big plans for him. I know they had big plans for him from the start. Uh, Vince absolutely loved the gimmick, and I guess for a while was waiting for the right guy for it. And yeah, I, I think Snooker was fine because you wanted to put Undertaker over clean. 
the only other guy I could think of, as you're, you're saying, if you're going to squash somebody, then he's the guy. The only other person I thought of was the boss man because he's always great with bumping on with big guys. He makes big guys look fantastic. Yeah, that I, I like Thomas said, I, I wouldn't have, you know, you want Undertaker to go over strong and you don't want to do yeah. that with boss man who's still one of your top guys. Is there anyone else they could have used to do this than Snooker, though? I mean, uh, my God, was he washed up? Maybe he was still big. It might have been worse. That's the only (laughs) other option. It might be worse, Duggan. How's (laughs) how's Tony Gurria doing? Uh, (laughs) Let's run Tony right in there. So next, John English. Was there a better solution to the venue change issue than what they wound up doing? I have a very quick answer, and then I'll send it to Thomas. Yeah, put a better card up. Thomas, what do you think? Well, that's the easy answer, putting a better card up. But, I mean, at that point in time, now I mean, you could have run it at the, at the Great Western Forum and just said, okay, because of this. And then it would look – it was sort of had the great name because the L.A. Sports Arena kind of just was a house show place. It wasn't very, you know – and the Forum wasn't, wasn't, a, wasn't a nice place really either back in 1991. But it would have given you a little bit more panache of the name. But it is what it is. I mean, it, short of moving it out of Los Angeles, which would have really been a white flag, which Vince wasn't going to put up, they did the best they could. Yeah, I agree with Thomas. They did the best they could. While we're talking about Bruce Pritchard, Bruce Pritchard has put out the idea that it was, you know, not only were they not going to sell out the Coliseum, he acknowledges that somehow, but he says that they couldn't have had it at the Coliseum either for security issues that they needed extra security and they just weren't going to be able to police an area as large as the Los Angeles Coliseum. And I just don't believe that. I I don't believe that extra security would have been necessary. Like, Oh no, the terrorists are going to attack a pro wrestling show. But the reality is that there wasn't any significant terrorism in the United States in 1991. Like I know there was an incident or two, but nothing the WWF would have to worry about. Wasn't the Super Bowl played in the Rose Bowl that year, though? Ah, uh, I think so. I'm yeah, pretty I sure. I thought so, too, yeah. Oh, yeah, was it was the Rose Bowl. I mean, okay. you were having major events there. The argument's ridiculous. This is hubris. This was inevitable. This is the ghost of Tootsmont smacking Vince down for putting down that card and expected to draw 100,000 people. Yeah, I don't think any card he could have put out was going to draw 100,000 in Los Angeles. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. You go, you watch a UCLA football game, and they've got 60,000 people in there. That's a lot of people, and the place looks empty. Arrogance. I mean, it's just that these last couple of cards were just, you know, it's he was trying to sell WrestleMania on the name alone, yeah. and he wasn't there yet. He wasn't there yet. He's there now. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, we're seeing it. So to Brandon Hefner, <laughs> there we go. Did they really think they'd sell out the Coliseum or at least make it respectable? Yeah, like, you know, let, me, let me ask you this way, John. What was Meltzer's view on this heading into this? When they moved the arenas, was that a shock or was it like, okay, of course they had to? It was okay, of course they had to. The shock was when they announced that they were going to do it at the Los Angeles Coliseum. And to answer Brandon's question, I mean, yeah, they were that delusional that they thought at first they were going to sell it out. And then ticket sales came in. At like, I don't know, I think it was like 11,000 or 12,000 when they decided to move it. Okay, Eric Ford, is Hogan's blade job the most obvious in WrestleMania history? Thomas, Thomas. what do you think? Most obvious. Uh, WrestleMania hit. Yes, 
<laughs> I mean, I, I can't think of one that's so blatant that I could definitely say no to it. So by just by airing on the side of caution, I will say yes, it was the most obvious blade job in WrestleMania history. And for, those don't, for those who don't remember, he left the blade on the mat and the ref had to go get it. Yeah, I, I can't even think of what would be in second place here. I know it's Wrestle, the WrestleMania main event, but I was still very surprised that Hogan bladed. Uh, the WWF banned the blade in like late 1987. And, you know, here we have this one rogue match where they're using the blood. Act of desperation. This is getting anything going. You could just tell how much. And you know what? There was the most obvious blade job, the whole thing. And it was the 47th thing wrong with that match. <laughs> I mean, it was, that's how bad this whole thing was. Tony Blackson said, does Macho ruin the ending of a classic match by rolling out of the ring, Thomas? No, I, I don't think so. I, and I, I saw that question and I, and I thought about it for a minute, but just the way that Savage gave him the three elbows and Warrior still kicked out and then Warrior pinned him with one foot, Savage gave him everything possible. To me, rolling out of the ring was secondary. Yeah, I, I never really even thought about that, so it didn't you know, make any kind of impression on me. But one thing I wanted to mention, this was Savage's retirement match. He was stepping away from wrestling for a while because he and Elizabeth were allegedly having some marital issues, and they thought they were going to resolve those issues by having kids. So Randy wanted to get off the gas, you know, spend some time at home, and resume his wrestling career at a later point. Listen to me, everyone. Let's save the marriage by having kids isn't just a Hall of Fame level bad idea. It deserves its own wing. And of course, we know what happened with Savage and Liz from here. I liked it. I mean, I thought it added kind of a twist to it. I mean, it's, it's you know, Warrior's reaction, the whole thing. I, I thought it was, it went from the usual match by rote to just, it, I liked it. It added a bit of realism to the situation. That's why I was kind of surprised when I saw the question, but. I mean, if you're used to seeing their matches a lot, I can see, especially uh, Warrior's reaction. But Kevin Diggum, oh, I'm going to go off on this. Uh, was this the best run of Sergeant Slaughter's career, Thomas? No, 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 no. Not even in the WWF. When you factor in the push that he had, I think even as champion, when you look at the matches he had on television, whether it was with Hacksaw Jim Duggan or whether it was with you know Tito Santana, he didn't even go over Tito Santana clean with Survivor Series. He got DQ'd by him on Survivor Series 1990. And he got the world title based on the fact of Savage interfering. He was probably booked weaker, if you really think about it, than any WWF champion until then. Now, I think without a shadow of a doubt, let's take away the Mid-Atlantic and AWA stuff. He had a better booking in 83-84 WWF than he did in 90-91. That's just my opinion. I guess it depends on what we mean by best run. Best in the ring? Well, obviously, no. Slaughter was sensational in the early 80s. But as far as, like, you know, quality of the run, I mean, God, yeah. I mean, he's the WWF champion. He's he's headlining WrestleMania. I mean, nothing he did before that, in my opinion, even comes close to that. Again, it goes by how you're asking the question. If you're asking it about money, then yeah, just because of the platform. In, in any other category, no. He was, as far as quality of the promos and quality of the ring, he was better in both runs in JCP. He was better in the, as a heel run the first time in the WWF. And I agree with Thomas. He was better as a face the first time. So in every other category but money, and he couldn't avoid that, just from the platform and from the, you know, and God bless him. I'm, I'm not, you know, getting on about this, but as far as, if you're thinking this is Sarge's top work, 
go take a look at the lead up to um, the 83 match with him and Don against Ricky and Jay, and then you'll see Sarge. You know, let me say this really quick, too. I mean, in the 80s, he was a different Sergeant Slaughter. He was more of a, a pro wrestler. Now it's 1990, and Vince asked him to kind of play a cartoonish character, and he played it. How old do you think Slaughter was here? I was shocked when I looked this up. How old do I think he is? Yeah, and when this happened. I'm going to guess 43. Yeah, it was about there. It was like 41, too. I, I thought okay. he was much older than that for some reason. No, he, I mean... He, I know he started like 73, 74, so he wasn't that old. Brandon Rice, did anybody take Slaughter's run as champion series? I'll just get my answer out of the way quickly. No, um, <laughs> not even a little bit. Thomas? There was absolutely no way that he was, that Hogan wasn't walking out to belt in WrestleMania 7. The way that they booked, you can't book Hulk Hogan as a Patriot the way they did during a wartime and let Slaughter walk out. I would say there would have been a riot in the stands if Slaughter would have walked out the belt, but no one would have cared. So, well, this was I, like Garvin and Flair at Starcade. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. I mean, everyone, just like Garvin and Flair, I mean, we, we all knew why Ronnie Garvin had the belt. Even the densest mark in the audience knew why Ronnie Garvin had the belt, and we all knew why Sergeant Slaughter had the belt. You know, one thing I want to say, too. I talked a little bit earlier about you know how this was a very controversial angle that Vince was using a real-life war where people are dying as a background for a wrestling angle. And I just want to say this really quick. Everyone I know who served in the military and was a wrestling fan back then, they loved it. This is where wrestling goes. This is what we do. I mean, how many tasteless angles do I have to see? The reason this didn't work was it was insulting because you expected fans to go watch it. I mean, you can have tasteless and have it work. And then Tasteless, and it doesn't work, and this didn't work. But, I mean, Tasteless and the wrestling angle, that, that horse is out of the barn. Here's what was Tasteless about this. Originally, supposedly, the plan was for Slaughter to burn the American flag in one of those stand-up interviews with Mean Gene during the TV tapings. Obviously, common sense prevailed. Then Slaughter burns the Hulkamania t-shirt, which everyone sells like it's the American flag on steroids. <laughs> Remember that? Oh, God. Yes, uh, that was offensive. <laughs> uh, that was ridiculous. Hey, one last thing I wanted to bring up about this show. Four years after they debuted in the WWF, we finally have the Ted DiBiase versus Virgil breakup and the match where Virgil turns babyface, which had been planned from day one when they brought DiBiase and Virgil in together. Virgil had been wrestling as Soul Train Jones in Memphis. He wasn't really good in the ring, but he looked good and he had charisma. One idea the WWF had while bringing him in is someday he is going to be a major star. And as a babyface, he was going to turn on DiBiase. It was inevitable. And he was not very good in the ring. And the idea was, okay, well, you put him in with Ted DiBiase, have him watching Ted DiBiase close every night he'll pick something up and it never happened he never got good in the ring he was always supposedly kind of goofy outside it and that huge Virgil push that they had penciled in probably for 89 or so just never happened they had the feud the feud wasn't a big deal and then Virgil became an underneath baby face can you imagine the horrible ideas these people had to throw away if these are the things they're using I don't know, Sean, because I think the crowd was... When Virgil turned on D.B. Austin, the Royal Rumble, that place erupted. 
Yeah. And in WrestleMania, he got well. The problem with WrestleMania was Virgil can't talk, so they get Piper to talk for him, which makes it a Piper DB Austin feud. So before the first match, you've already cut Virgil out of being the star of the feud. That's what killed Virgil dead on arrival. Um, I, I definitely see that, but I, I know the aspirations that they had for him. They'd already given up on those by then. It was like, you know, and we were all kind of waiting for this to happen. And then that's when I heard, yeah, they've, they've kind of given up on this guy for, for a number of reasons. Like you said, he couldn't talk, he couldn't work. And yeah, supposedly he was kind of a goofball. Just uh, one last quick thing on this show, back to what we're talking about, the tasteless thing. Five years early, we had a babyface Nazi in the AWA. Again, this isn't going to offend me as a wrestling fan, this show. And as you, like you said, it was mostly popular. It was just people who don't watch it, for the most part, who were getting on it. So, oh, this one. Uh, you're right, John. This is the best of the bunch. And we go to Indianapolis. And was it the right, from Kevin Dingham, was it the right call switching Hogan versus Flair to Savage versus Flair? Thomas. Yes, um, I, I will say I'll err to the unpopular opinion and say, yes, it was better off to go Hogan's did Savage Flair. And again, I'll say the fact that they really thought Hogan was leaving. They even went to the point during primetime wrestling where they had a separate segment with Hogan and Vince and Vince saying, Hulk, is this it? And Hogan saying, I don't know. You know they, they were really kind of putting it out there that Hogan might be done. So at this point in time, Hogan can't beat Flair for the world title, obviously. You know, they're surely not going to have Flair pin Hogan. Now, obviously, this is the first WrestleMania we talked about with, with six. The first one we had a schmoz with Hogan and Sid. Be that as it may, they did it the right way. They put the matches in the wrong order. The show should have ended with Savage Flair. Okay, I'll tell you what. Sean, I would like to switch places. I would like you to answer this question, and I'll answer it. And then I'll tell Thomas why they couldn't have Savage Flair last. You have to do this. For whatever reason, you can't do this. You have to do this. You have these two guys. This match has been talked about for, at this point for years in every magazine. He didn't even have to build it up. It was already done. And even if the match stunk or, you know, it has to, you, you knew Andre and Hogan was going to stink. It was the event. And that's what you were going to have with Hogan Flair. You have to make this happen somewhere other than a house show. I agree with that. The house show thing was a mistake, but here's what I can tell you. And I, I know this for a fact. This isn't like internet rumor or whatever. I mean, this is what someone in the business who would know told me in 1991. Okay. That Sid was going to win the WCW world's heavyweight title at the great American bash in 1991. That was going to be his night. That was what WCW was willing to do to keep him on the roster. They were going to try to make Sid their Hulk Hogan. But Sid instead decided to go to the WWF. And now Vince was the ultimate guy who would say, I don't give out guarantees. I give out opportunities. But he made an exception here. He promised Sid the next WrestleMania main event. And that's why Sid supposedly wasn't happy that they built it as a double main event. But that's why they had to have Hogan Sid in the main event, and that's why that match had to go on last, because Sid was promised the main event at WrestleMania. Oh, it's just the, the whole thing is this big. I, I just, whenever I have to hear all the reasons why it didn't happen, it baffles me he could not make this happen in the WrestleMania. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, he didn't. It's not like you had to negotiate something. You had both, those negotiations you see on those fake press conferences are fake. He has them both under contract. 
it, oh my I mean, god it wasn't a fake press this, conference this, this is not fake news man this i know this for a fact Oh, I'm just saying, I just, it is baffling. They could not make this happen to me. It's just one of these things that you, this has been talked about since how, how many times has this been this, you would see this in all the aftermags, Hogan, Flair, Flair, Hogan, Flair, Hogan for years. Yeah. And there they are. I think they agreed. Sid and Vince came to an agreement. I want to say April or May, 1991, that Sid was coming in and here's the deal. And I don't know if Sid had it in writing or not. If he did, well, Vince has got to do it. If he doesn't have it in writing, then Vince, you know, still lived up to his word. Makes no sense. Even in that case, you can't tell me that Vince McMahon's never reneged on a promise. He's never reneged on a deal. You can't tell me that it wouldn't be more logical to say, okay, Sid, I know I promised you that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm paying Hogan this. I'm paying Flair this for the main event. I'll pay you the same exact thing to go work the semi-main. Are we square there? I mean, something there could have been concessions made. Yeah, which would now makes me think Sid had it in writing. Once you put it out there that way, I mean, it's amazing to me how I don't know how everyone thought that Sid was going to be something that he wasn't. Uh, number one, um, and and number two, at the time the deal was made, Vince had no idea that Ric Flair was going to become available. To uh, next question from Lawrence Miles. Uh, was this actually supposed to be Terry Brett Favre Balea's last match as they were making it out to be, Thomas? Like we kind of talked about it. Well, we kind of we thought about this potentially with six and with now with eight. I, I think they were always kind of keeping the door open for Hogan to leave and maybe not come back or come back. The way it was booked. I think that Vince kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, all right, Hulk, you know, go out and run, you know, go be free. Let's <laughs> see what we can do without each other. Maybe, maybe we need a break from each other. You know, they may come back in two years maybe come back in 18 months, but I need to run this company now without Hulk Hogan to see, you know, what kind of legs we have. The reason Hulk Hogan left after this match was because they were in the middle of a steroid scandal and it was Hulk Hogan's name who kept coming up on Entertainment Weekly or, or whatever gossip show was out there. And yeah, that that's why they benched Hogan. So I remember the theory at the time was he would be back in time for SummerSlam, but no, he was gone for almost a year. And that's what that was all about, that they kind of just put him on the bench for a while and let things cool off. All right. Paul Skivers asks, hey, we'll get to a bright point here. What are your thoughts on the Piper Hart match for the IC title? Thomas. Oh, it was certainly the match of the night. And it was one of those things where I think me as a fan at the time, assumed that Piper would turn heel on Brett. That was the thought that I had there. Cause I, I kind of thought that Brett would win the belt back, but I wasn't quite sure. Like I said, Piper could go heel. And it had been at that point in time, really five years. Piper was a heel to me. It made sense in the time frame that, you know, there's a new generation of fans now that have never seen Roddy Piper at his true pinnacle as a heel. Maybe it's time to roll that back again. And really, in reality, maybe, I don't know, maybe he did something in WCW that I didn't pay attention to in the late 90s. But that was it for Piper's an in-ring competitor as a heel. And he never did it again beyond, you know, the late 86. And I'm surprised, and maybe a little disappointed that Piper didn't turn in that match, but the match itself was great. I know there was definitely some talk uh, or, or some speculation that Piper could have turned heel in the match because 
I remember hearing at the time, yeah, this is a possibility because Roddy has completely given up on the idea that he's going to be a movie star. So that's no longer in the way of him being a heel. But I really liked the match. I thought it was probably at the time definitely one of the 10 best WrestleMania matches of all time. And there's also a cool story. Uh, Brett bladed in this match, which you were not supposed to do in the WWF at this time. And Brett, you know, just made up a story like, no, it, it was hard way, man. That wasn't supposed to happen. And without anyone like really taking a look at it, they just bought that. Meanwhile, Flair bleeds in the main event and he gets caught using the blade. And Flair was in hot water for a while over that. I love this match. It's it's probably maybe Piper's best match in the WWF. And I'm with Thomas. This is really the only intrigue of this entire card for me going into it was I pretty much had it marked down that Brett was winning the belt and Piper was turning heel. And I was pumped because I love Piper as a heel. But uh, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. He made it work, though. This was a tremendous match. Was John, what was the issue? Did, was there an issue with him taking the pinfall here? Because I'm trying to remember a pinfall he's taken in the WWF, and I'm drawing a blank aside of this one. Uh, I think this was the first. Uh, no, he got pinned in Boston against Hulk Hogan, but that wasn't on TV. I don't know if he did any other jobs. I know Piper was on a strict I don't do jobs policy. He had been on this since, like, I want to say the uh, the middle of 83 or so, maybe even before that. Um, what was, was the difference a, here? There was a match in early 87 where Piper was pinned, and I want it was either Savage or Adrian Adonis pinned him. And the way he pinned him was Andre was the guest referee. Yes! And, on, and Andre kind of used his weight to help you know, Adonis pin Piper. You're right. That was in Uniondale, and it was like beginning late 86, early 87, right before Andre finished his heel turn. But that's right. It was against Adrian Adonis in Uniondale. Was there an issue with discussing this in the background, uh, behind the scenes, John, as far as Piper goes, or was he happy to do it? I think Piper did it not only as a favor to Brett, who he had known for a long, long time, but maybe as, even as a, a thank you to Stu. Because uh, that's what I was gonna, yeah. Okay, that's because gonna wonder, yeah, yeah. I have, I have the feeling that that had a lot to do with it. The last questions all pretty much are kind of around the warrior. Fred Sacco asked, I'm just gonna kind of run them off. Uh, did anyone in the know, the dirt sheets and uh, such, no warrior was returning? Tony wanted to know, should they have brought the warrior back earlier and have him face Sid and Hogan against Flair? Tony also brings up the fact that he didn't look very good when he got back. What do you think should have been uh, playing with Warrior, Thomas? See, I, I think in that day and age, with you know no internet, no uh, Monday Night Raw, that having a guy debut unannounced or making his return to WrestleMania is really throwing money away. Yep. Had they just said, "How okay, the Ultimate Warrior is back and he's going up against you know Earthquake or whoever that it was going to be." At least then you might have, you know, piqued some interest in that match. Warrior Sid would have been bowling shoe ugly. I'm glad we got Hogan Sid. If that's what we were going to have, if that's the way the Warrior's going to come in, you know, a, a last minute run in to close the show, give me that over Warrior Sid or Warrior Papa Shango. So I guess given the fact that how he came in, given those circumstances, it's fine. But I think they really screwed the pooch not announcing it before him that he was returning. I agree. It would have helped the buy rate. Well, how about you, Sean? Is there a possibility they may have been concerned about how the fans were going to take him back? No. This, because by doing it this way, they're providing him cover. Aside of that, it makes no sense at all because you, you don't need him here. 
So what's the point? I mean, you save that for you want to pop a place and, you know, you actually need that. You don't need it here. So that's the only reason I could think they would do this is they're not 100% sure. And they just want to make sure they're covered. Well, I'm going to answer the first two questions kind of at the same time. There are two schools of thought about the Ultimate Warrior. That one, you know, business is down and Vince could use him and there was talk that he was coming back. There was also another group of people who were like, there is no way Vince is taking that guy back. There was so much bad blood at the end and Vince was glad to have him out of his hair and he didn't want him back in his hair. I think at the end of the day, Vince and the Warrior and WWF needed some time away from each other. And Warrior being home, not collecting a giant paycheck at the end of every week, probably helped move that along. What about his physical appearance, John? Well, I mean, that's easy. I mean, once again, we're in the middle of the whole WWF steroid scandal. And Vince McMahon had announced like IOC level of testing. So Warrior was going to get tested. That was all there was to it. Everyone was getting tested. And that's why Warrior showed up looking the way he looked because he couldn't get on the gas. You know, a lot of guys around this time, their physiques were failing because if you want to get off steroids, you can't just stop using them. You have to cycle off. You cycle on and cycle off. The guys just stopped using them cold turkey. And what a surprise, their physiques completely collapsed. Could that be maybe a reason why they would be concerned about what his reception would be like coming back is how he looked? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think people, they were just happy to have him back. I mean, if you're, you know, generally speaking, if you're a WWF fan, you were also an ultimate warrior fan. And, but it was so weird, like watching him like wrestle in that thing that he had that was designed to hide his physique. Like that's all he had was his physique and it was gone now. Well, that's the other problem is the fact that how much you want to feature him knowing that he was kind of one of the poster children for that era. You know, that's a good question. That's a good point. I think, though, by this point, he's such a big name that you're hoping you can just ride on that. He, he would seem to be a guy you want to get away from unless you're really kind of hurting. Because, again, it's bringing up that this is where you want to get to the Bret Hart guys. The, you know what? I mean, they really were kind of hurting. I mean, business had been steadily going down for at least like three years. The arenas, you know. WrestleMania was still doing fine, but I mean, you look at some of their attendances in 1992. I mean, I remember going to a show in the Boston Garden. There were like 3,000 people there, and I was just taken aback. But anyway, this has been, as usual, the hour flies by. Thomas, thank you very much for coming on. You're a great guest as usual. Gentlemen, always my pleasure. All right. And I want to thank Sean for all the work he does. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Stay home.